They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators can't make a breakthrough in that time, their chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if they don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours? Or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 29, 1968. I left episode 28 with some homework to do, both in my continuing investigation into Mr. A, Morris, but also after learning that David Nathan's brother, Mick, may have been involved with the drug scene that at the end of the 1960s was starting to develop in Burton. Now, that might have been coincidental. A lot of people were experimenting with drugs at the time, so it may not mean anything. But it was an interesting suggestion, particularly given the proximity of the mill where Mick Nathan was working to the deposition site. So it could be something or nothing, but it's there. I often use the analogy of the jigsaw puzzle to describe this process, and it's one that feels most real to me. And I still feel that we're in the process of turning over the pieces and that we're going to be doing that for a while yet before we really start to fit them together. And many of the pieces we turn over may be from a completely different puzzle. So let's keep turning those pieces over. And in this episode, I'm about to turn over some new pieces, something that hadn't really occurred to me before this episode. And it started with something we haven't spoken about for a while. Dentistry. And that ended up leading me in a completely new direction. One of the most pleasing aspects of the growth in listenership to this podcast is that I do receive offers of help from a lot of people. Which actually was one of the intentions when I started the podcast. To raise the profile of the case and get lots of people involved. And a couple of weeks ago, I received a message from a man called Joe Rigushka. Joe's a listener. He's on the Facebook page. He happens to be a fellow Bengals fan. So we're both very excited at the moment about the Super Bowl. But that's not why he contacted me. Joe mentioned that his uncle Stefan, Stefan Rigushka, had been a dental technician in the early 1970s in the Midlands. And it might be worth me making contact with him maybe sharing some of the photographs of the dentistry just to see if he could shed any light on it. Good idea. So I made contact with Stefan and sent him what I had on the dentistry. That's mainly photographs and the descriptions I'd found in the newspapers. And a few days later, I got a reply, which I found very interesting. And I'll read it to you. And it's useful because just like last week, it feels like we're coming full circle. Stefan Rogushka's thoughts made me think of something I thought about in earlier episodes. He wrote me a short report on what he'd seen, and I'll read it to you now. The quality of the photos is not great. 
However, from what I can see about the denture, the suggestion that the aesthetic acrylic was an unusual material for the period 1968 to 1971 is probably not correct. Acrylic resin was first used in the late 1930s for denture manufacture. Acrylic is naturally a very translucent material and it requires the addition of pigments to provide a material that is suitable aesthetically for a denture. And by the 1960s there was a large range of materials available and the use of red veins in a product described as light pink veined was always used when I first started my apprenticeship in 1972 and my thoughts being that this would have been available for many years before that. The quality of the production for the denture is not to a high standard. As evidenced from the junction of pink acrylic and artificial teeth, the area is poorly executed, creating a poor surface quality that would create issues with hygiene and the aesthetic result. The denture base material, the pink stuff, is also very thick. This would provide an uncomfortable prosthesis to wear, and in general, the prosthetic base should be thinner. And all this leads me to conclude the dental work may not have been produced within private practice or even within our NHS. In the 1960s and 70s, the NHS provision was much better than this. My thoughts are that this restorative work was undertaken in Eastern Europe. And this is also supported by a colleague that I've consulted who is from Croatia and is familiar with working as a dental technician during the Soviet era in Croatia. Their immediate reaction was, this is Soviet style work. I hope this is of some help. It's only my opinion and it will probably push you in a completely different direction. However, I think this is the most likely representation of the dentistry at the time. Now, neither Stefan or Stefan's colleague in Croatia are listeners to the podcast. They don't know the backstory. So when Stefan says, this is probably going to push you in a different direction, what he means is Eastern Europe. And he doesn't know that there are already very strong indications of an Eastern European origin for Fred. And by the way, his assertion that pinked veined acrylic was not unusual. Well, we've heard that before. Remember, we spoke to a very senior dental expert a few episodes back, and he said the same. This pink vein material was normal. Strange though, that the police firmly believed at the time that it was not normal. But now two dental experts have said very clearly that it was. And what about that Soviet style work? That's a very interesting term. For someone who grew up in the 1960s and 1970s, Soviet style means one thing. It doesn't mean Russian. It means from an era when half of Europe and all of Eastern Europe was under Russian control before the Berlin Wall came down and the Iron Curtain was lifted. Time for a short history lesson, especially for those who went around in the 1960s. After the Second World War finished in 1945, half of Europe, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia, Hungary, Romania, the Baltic states, 
and half of Germany came under Russian political control. Those countries made up something called the Warsaw Pact, i.e. the communist half of Europe. On the other side were the Western nations, the UK, France, Austria, the other half of Germany, the USA, to name a few of them. And that political boundary between the communist half of Europe and the Western nations stayed in place from around 1948 to about 1990, so about 40 years. And relations between both sides were extremely hostile and more than once threatened nuclear catastrophe. This was the spy era of James Bond and John le Carré, the Cold War, as we came to know it. So, when Stefan's Croatian colleague says this is recognisable as Soviet-style dentistry, for someone based in Croatia to say that, that's important, because they would have seen a lot of Soviet-style dentistry. In fact, anyone who lived in Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Yugoslavia or the Baltic countries would have had Soviet-style dentistry. But the other strange thing to come from that is based on something else that we know about the dentistry, in that it was only done shortly before his time of death. And we also know there are no matching dental records in the UK that could be found. But if this dentistry was done in Eastern Europe in the months before his death, that's very unusual because generally people weren't traveling between Eastern Europe and the UK. Younger listeners may not know, in this Cold War period, you simply couldn't move between Eastern Europe and Western Europe. That was impossible for ordinary people. So if the dentistry was done shortly before his death, but in Eastern Europe, that can only mean one of two things. Either he got out of Eastern Europe somehow, or the Eastern Europeans let him out. Now option two is a very dark alley. It's espionage and spies, and I'm not sure I want to go down there yet. But let's concentrate on option one. How could people who weren't supposed to get out of Eastern Europe get out of Eastern Europe? Because there were Eastern Europeans in the UK in 1968. So how did they get there? Well, the vast majority had stayed here after the war, part of the Polish army or displaced refugees who came to the UK immediately after the end of the Second World War. The next big influx of refugees happened in 1956 after the Hungarian uprising in which the Hungarians who were looking to loosen some of these Soviet style controls had been crushed by the Russians and tens of thousands of Hungarians came to the UK at that time. Interestingly Frank Kuhn had come before that time, don't quite know how he managed to do that. But clearly there were Hungarians here from 1956. But after that it was very very difficult. But that doesn't mean there wasn't a lot going on in Eastern Europe. In fact 
1968 was a very, very important year in the history of the Soviet pact countries, particularly Czechoslovakia. In 1968, something happened in Czechoslovakia that was very similar to what had happened in Hungary in 1956. The Prague Spring was crushed when Warsaw Pact countries rolled into Czechoslovakia to crush what they saw as the loosening of Soviet-style controls by their leader, Alexander Dubček. He was attempting to reform the harsh communism of the Soviet style and replacing it with something called socialism with a human face. So he lifted censorship and control of the media and he liberalised Czechoslovak society. It was becoming more westernised. But it didn't last long. On the 20th and 21st of August 1968, the Warsaw Pact countries invaded Czechoslovakia and imposed the strict Soviet discipline once again. But what does that mean in the terms of this story? Well, it meant that there were lots and lots of Czechoslovak refugees. Between September 1968 and the end of 1969, thousands of Czechoslovaks escaped. 12,000 went to Canada, 16,000 went to Australia, thousands went to South Africa, many went to the United States, and some came to the UK. 300 people a day were applying for visas to enter Britain in the British Embassy in Prague in September 1968. But by summer 1969, all those borders were closed again, and they were shooting people who were trying to cross it. So what does all that mean? Well, it means that at the moment, there's a new bee in my bonnet. We know the dentistry was recent to his death. We know it was untraceable in the UK. We know he had a wedding ring on his right wedding ring finger, an Eastern European trait. We know he wasn't missed by anyone in the UK. He seemed to have absolutely no roots. We know he probably died in 1969. And we know the university suggested that the origin of the skull was probably around Hungary. Czechoslovakia borders Hungary. So the thing I've got in my head at the moment is, was he in Czechoslovakia in 1968 and made his way to the UK in the wake of the Russian invasion? But how did he end up in Burton? I thought it might be a good idea to talk to Zoe Kun. Maybe she could remember if there was anything to do with Czech refugees going on in 1968 and 1969. Her dad, Frank, a multilinguist, might be exactly the kind of person that a Czech refugee might seek out if they'd just arrived in Burton. And she did remember something. Hello, Ken, how are you? I'm good, Zoe, how are you? Hey, just a quick one, and, and I promise I won't keep you on for an hour. A thought I had, which I wanted to run past you. Do you remember we talked about dentistry? This guy had unusual dentistry. Yeah. I happened to get in contact with 
someone who was essentially a dental technician at the time. I sent him the pictures of the dentistry. He came back to me and said he'd passed, he'd had a look at it and he'd passed it round a few of his friends. One of those friends was in Croatia. They said, this is clearly Soviet style work. What he means by that is dentistry done behind the Iron Curtain after the Second World War. Yeah. Not Russian, in, in the countries that would have been in the Warsaw Pact, if you like. Yeah. So that, again, is another indicator of Eastern European origin. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Now, we know from the police investigation that the dentistry was done quite recent to death. Within a year, really, or 18 months, of this person being killed, some of that dentistry was done. Somebody who has escaped from, the, from, the, from behind the Iron Curtain in the 60s. Correct. I was looking through stuff that was happening around that time. I'd, I'd obviously was very aware of 1956 and the Hungarian situation where you know, the Russians crushed the you know, Hungarian uprising and loads of Hungarians came to the UK and Australia and Canada and all those kind of places as a direct result of that. The same thing happened in 1968 in Czechoslovakia. Yes. I was sitting here the other day and I, I had a light bulb moment. It doesn't often happen for me. I thought, was this person a Czech refugee? He would be registered then. The Czech refugees that were, that were brought to England, and, and there were quite a lot of them, um, as far as I know, they were all passed through political channels. And there would not be the necessity for people to enter illegally. They would have been welcomed. Exactly. That's, that's a possibility. It is. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking, like, I'm, I know my dad needs to check people. That's why I was ringing. Because what I was thinking is, if I was a Czech refugee and I ended up in Burton, somehow I'd probably find my way to Frank Kuhn. Well, yeah, he, did, he spent some time after the war in Czechoslovakia on his way out through, he ended up going out through India. Your dad's like Marco Polo. He's like been everywhere. Well, the Russians, um, at the end of the war, they said to him, do you want to set up in, in, in the local town or somewhere else around, around here or, or do you want to go? And he said, I'll go, thanks. But he spent some time in Czechoslovakia then? Yeah, he was in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Estonia, Turkey, Morocco, somewhere, somewhere in Afghanistan, and then in, in India. He never quite made it to China. I'm just thinking, do you remember any Czechoslovak talk or people or anything? I would imagine it would have been a point of conversation back then. It was a big, obviously a huge news story. Oh, yeah. it, was, it was a big drama. And my dad was very interested. And, and I know there was some, one guy that came to work in the mill who had, who had come from Czechoslovakia. Just trying to see whether he came with anybody else. Someone worked at the mill who was from Czechoslovakia? Yeah, I'm sure there was a Czech guy that worked there. I do remember that there was a, a Czech fellow there. Have been, it should have been um, in that year then. Yeah. Unless there was somebody who got out, who got out at the end of the war. That's true. Yeah, so, so it's a possibility that, that your body was one of those people. I'm starting to think, because we know he hadn't been in the UK for very long, he had no roots. We can't trace the dentistry. Nobody missed him. He wasn't in the National Health Service. 
it sounds to me like someone who had pretty much off the boats kind of thing had maybe only been in Burton for three or four months only been in the UK for maybe five or six months when he died probably Eastern European that's starting to sound like a check to get away from all that trouble and then end up dead in a kill isn't that an awful story but but we don't know how we don't know why but I didn't know someone worked at the mill who was Czechoslovak yeah I'm sure we had a Czech fellow there um he was on the third floor I think what and what what happened on the third floor do you know well, basically, the, the grain goes in at the top of the mill. It gets sorted and and grit removed and stuff like that, and shaken yeah. on the third floor. He would have been in one of the people who was with the sorting machinery. Both skilled job rather than a high-skilled job. Got you. So how do you remember this Czechoslovak? I know, it, it just came to me when you said, mentioned Czechoslovakia I got this face in my mind. And what did that face look like? Um, a little bit wrinkled and sun bronze, greying mid-brown hair, light eyes, wide <laughs> mouth, couple of gold fiddlings, high cheekbones and and, um, and slightly sunken below the cheek the cheekbones. And an older man or a younger man? Yeah an no, no, older man he would have been older than my dad. Oh, okay. So... He's not your victim, but I'm just wondering whether... I, I don't know whether there's any records of who, who worked there at the time. Well, there are, because I know people who work there. So I know quite a lot of people now who work there. I do not remember the name. So, but I suspect it was a Mr. Somebody unpronounceable. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's interesting, because I didn't know there was any possibility of a Czechoslovak person be working at the mill. When, when you said Czechoslovakian, I just got the picture in my mind, which is what makes me think, well, that, that must be why I've got that picture in my mind. Why, why would it pop up on that word? Okay. That, that, that was, it would have been a low-skilled job because he was where they, would, where they take the grit out of the, out of the grain. I mean, some, it, it, it could even have been the father of, of your victim. Yeah, indeed. Imagine that people would, would manage to come out in, in family groups sometimes. Yes. But could be totally unrelated for that matter as well. Hmm. I think we I think we might have been in Germany, Mum and I, when that all blew up. I think you were there. I think you were there a bit after that, because uh, it all blew up in. We, we were there. We were there in in '69 um, as well, but we were there '68, I think, as well. Oh right. Well, yeah. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. Now, I've got an announcement to make. Some news, hopefully exciting news. From a week on Wednesday, that's Wednesday the 23rd of February, we'll be starting a new case. Now, it'll be a mini-series, six parts initially, just to see how it develops. And after that period, if we still think it's solvable, will continue. But already we've made some fascinating progress. And just like with Fred the Head, we won't be just reporting the case. We're in this to try to solve it. And it won't just be me. I'm going to be joined on that journey by Ian Mackay, an old friend of mine who's going to be sharing the hosting duties with me. 
Now, I'm afraid you're going to have to wait and see what we're working on. But it's a very, very interesting one. Not dissimilar to Fred. And I think, solvable. Now, our investigation into Fred will continue as normal. This one's always been my baby. It will always come first. So it won't be two time in Fred. But, having discovered this new case, I think it will be interesting to see what we can do with it. So look out for that. I'm going to announce it on the Fred Facebook page. I'll post a link on that page next weekend. Now, if any of you are not on the Facebook page, send me an email to fredtheheadpodcast at gmail.com and I'll send you a link as soon as that podcast is released. So something to look forward to, I hope. But now, let's get back to the case. I started this episode by mentioning that I had some homework to do, but I've ended up getting somewhat diverted by my Czechoslovakian idea. But I haven't forgotten the two strands. Mr. A, Morris, as we now know him, and this suggestion that David Nathan's brother, Mick, may have been up to things he probably shouldn't have been. Firstly, Morris. There's a bit more to report about him. I've continued to find and have conversations with people who knew Morris. All I'm trying to do at the moment is try to understand what kind of character he was, whether it's possible that some of the claims we heard in episode 23 could be true. I was put in contact with a lady, let's call her Sharon. She's the daughter of Morris's first wife. She didn't know Morris personally. She was born after Morris had left. Morris is not her father. But she's heard a great deal about Morris from her mother, from her sisters, from her aunties and from her brothers. Now, it's important to remember, this is the recollection of the daughter of a wife who was wronged by Morris. But this is what she said. Nobody liked him. He was a very bad man. He was violent. What Terry had told us was the truth. He was a serial womanizer, despised by the family. They knew he was involved in things and he was definitely involved in something seriously illegal. He seemed to have access to money that his job shouldn't have been able to provide him with. And there's a suggestion that he was involved in the theft of expensive luxury cars and their resale. Within the family, he had a reputation. You did not cross him. People were genuinely afraid of him. That was absolutely definitive. The family despised him. She didn't know quite why, what he'd done. Maybe it was the violence towards his wife before they were married. Maybe it was the serial womanizing. But what she does remember is that psychologically, she describes him as not quite right. Now, does that make him a killer? No, 
absolutely not. It's just someone people didn't like. Sometimes families don't get on. That happens all the time. But this does seem to run much deeper than that. The family were convinced Morris was involved in some very, very bad stuff. Everyone I talk to who knows Morris, I ask the same question too. That is, from what you know, do you think he could have been capable of killing someone? Did he have the capacity to be a killer? Her answer? Yes, definitely. From what I know, there's not a shadow of doubt that he would have been capable of murder. And everyone in the family would say the same thing. Now, all those people have no qualifications in the recognition of murderers. It's just a personal opinion. But the thing that I can't get out of my mind is that if you put a thousand people in a room and asked their families, do you think they're capable of murder? I'm sure 999 would say no. But now I've spoken to three members of Morris's family and they've all said yes. Now that doesn't make him a murderer, but equally that's not normal. So he's far from in the clear at the moment. People generally seem to think he would have been very capable of it. So how do we take the Morris story further forward? Well, I think we can, and it involves a little sub-mystery. What I mean by that is this. Morris and his first wife split up in about 1963. And he seems to fall off the radar completely, disappears. Nobody seems to know in the family where he went to. And I mean nobody. I've not heard a single person explain where he was for the next 10 years. And those next 10 years are very important to our story because everything that happened in episode 23 was going on in the mid to late 60s, a period of time where Morris seems to disappear. So I really need to find what Morris was doing between 1963 and 1973 because if he was miles away from Burton, the chances are he wasn't involved in any of this. So that's my next little step in trying to work out what Morris was up to. So what about this other strand? This suggestion that Mick Nathan, David Nathan's brother, was involved in the distribution of drugs back at the end of the 1960s. Now, the obvious person to speak to was David Nathan. That was going to be an awkward call. I've had lots of conversations with David over the last couple of years, and I've come to like him. He's always been very helpful, very obliging to me. But this wasn't going to be like any of the other calls. I needed to tread very carefully, and I have to be honest... I wasn't looking forward to this. Hello? 
Hello David, Ken Davis here. Hello there. Is it convenient to talk for a second? Yeah, do all right mate. It's, a, it's an interesting one this. I just, it'll only be five minutes so I wanted to check something with you if you don't mind. Yeah? To be honest, it's about your brother. Michael. Yeah. Or Mick. Or Neg. As Neg. People... Neg. Yeah. Yeah, as people knew him. Yeah, that's what like. Uh, is, is Mick still, still with us? Is, is, he, is he still alive? Or... Oh, okay. Michael died uh, three, four years ago. Okay, okay. So well, I am shocked. Yeah, I, I understand he moved down to Somerset. Yeah, I'm, I'm very sorry to hear that, by the way. People said he wasn't like you. He wasn't like no, you. Not me. No, totally different. <laughs> totally different. He used to work at the mill. I know, and that's where it came from. I know a few people now who worked at the mill. Quite a few. And to be honest... A couple of people have said to me he was doing things he shouldn't have been doing. And he used to get up to a lot of things. Which, is, which I found, I didn't believe when people told me that. I said, well, no. I, I mean, I've got to know David. David is, I mean, he was a, he was a special constable. He was, you see, but Mick was different. Mick wasn't like David. No, he was a bit of a bugger in his days, let's put it like that. One person said, I, who himself was a bad lad, and and had been sent to remand home. He, he said to me, "You'll never guess who went set, went to get sent to a remand home same day as me." I said, "Well, obviously I won't guess that." No, he said, "Mick Nathan." Mick got sent to a a place up in Newton the Willows, in near Manchester, and escaped, and got dragged back. He, yes, he did. God, you were going back along. To be found in in a tent. Gardens yeah. when he was re-arrested and sent back. I think it was Blythe in Northumberland. Oh, was it? Okay, that's interesting. I'm not certain, but I think it was Blythe in Northumberland. What, where he ended up? Yeah. The thing they did to it, they taught him how to poach. That's great, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Go to the nun place and they teach you how to tickle salmon and trout. Well, I suppose it could be worse, but... <laughs> And I do apologise because I'm I'm sure I'm talking about things that you the last thing you want to do on a Friday night is talk about. I mean, were you close to him, or was he was he? I mean, I mean, I'm close to my brother, but my brother's very similar to me. He doesn't sound very similar to you. In fact, it sounds like he walked a completely different path to you. Uh, yeah, he did. Harmless, absolutely bloody harmless. But uh, from the stunts that he used to get up to. It, that would have been when he was 15 or 16 and you know we all do daft things when we're young and I did daft things when I was young did he grow out of that though when he got back did he kind of put all that behind him or was he always a bit like that um, I don't think he had any more brushes with the police ok hold on I'm trying to look back I don't think he had any more brushes with the police since, uh, since that one day he used to brew alcohol, I know that. He'd sell it to the Americans at Fold. I know he had connections with Fold. He had, a, he had connections with a fella called George Feffinger. No, no name's nothing to me. He's an American guy. I don't know any of his friends. Yeah. Right, right, he was, he, he was an American guy. We are totally different. <laughs> I mean, people say, people said it, you know. 
Yeah, people said he was he, he was clearly had the capacity to do things he shouldn't be doing. A couple of people have said to me, like, who knew you, who know you, said, you know, you obviously you were always, you know, you were very polite, you were you were well spoken, you were, you know, clearly had your head screwed on. Whereas your brother had the wrong attitude, is what people said. Now, I didn't know him. I mean, is that fair? Yeah. I wouldn't say that he long attitude. He was better educated than I was. He went to Dovecliff Grammar, ended up at Dovecliff Grammar. But a few people have said to me there was something about him. You have to be really careful with Neg. Really careful. I've never heard of that one. Did you ever, or did he know about the site? I don't think he ever went over there. You never went over there shooting with them or anything like that? No, I don't think I did. Okay. I can't, I can't remember whether or not he went across with the mill. He, they used to clear the um, logs in that off I know. the way. I know they did. And it's, did, yeah. it's the kind of thing, because, you know, he used to work in the silo and he used to work... Yeah, he used to keep silo i remember that yeah he did joe marston said he'd never had anybody that uh, knew the numbers without having to refer back to paperwork but your brother did yeah your brother did yeah can remember all that remember figures but he did you know general labouring as well so he'd be putting sacks on lorries and taking stuff off lorries and all that kind of stuff as well i think so I suppose there's a chance he might have ended up if if there was stuff debris on the weir he might have been sent over to sort it more than likely, yeah. More than likely. Sorry, I can't be much help on this. The only thing I can remember, he, he used to crew on ocean-going ships and stuff like that, yachts in the Med, Did in he? Greece. I can remember him going doing that. When was that then? Work at the Stanhope as an apprentice, out in the kitchens as an apprentice chef, Stanhope Arms. Yeah. When did he go? On the ships, then? Where did he go on the kind of ocean going? What, how old would he have been? Can't remember. Okay. We weren't all that close. He went his separate ways. Well, it sounds like it. Yes. <laughs> it sounds like it. Well, I'll be honest, it just looked like Jesus. He got hair on his shoulders. He used to wear a full length fur coat. <laughs> right. Okay. Including the summer. <laughs> And very, yeah. <laughs> and very tight jeans, I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> very tight, because he, uh, somebody tell you, used to sit in the bath and get him to go even as tight as they possibly could. Oh, more than likely. Yeah. I couldn't imagine you in 1970 wearing that kind of gear. <laughs> he's clearly living a different life to you, and probably oh, yeah. the last thing he's going to do is share that with you. I mean, you're prob- you're, were you already a special constable then? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I've got, I found a picture of him. You've got more than me. Oh, I'll send it to you. <laughs> so you, were, you just weren't close. You were just living very different lifestyles, weren't you, by the sound of it? Thanks for that. I appreciate it. It was a, tr- it was a tricky call, that was. <laughs> it was? Yeah, as I say, we, we left separate lives. We went all the way around the country, and I never really saw him again. The other thing, by the way, sorry, is a few people have said... That house, 126 Newton Road, where Frank Cunn lived, and also 127, 
stuff was going on in them houses that should not have been going on in them. After Frank left and after the Holsteads died, they were empty for a couple of years. And stuff was going on in them cottages that shouldn't have been going on. I've heard that. Well, look, that's been that's been very useful, David. Uh, I am grateful for it. I wanted I wanted just to I wanted just to confirm that he was he was as different to you as people yeah. said, <laughs> and he was. He was a woman. Yeah. Yeah. But th- thanks very much indeed for your help on all that. You're welcome. Bye again. Bye. Thanks, mate. Bye-bye. So that was my conversation with David Nathan. And it seems pretty clear to me that David and Mick were leading completely different lives. David had a career. He was a special constable with the police. Mick was leading a very different lifestyle. I think that's true. If Mick was up to anything that's relevant to this case... He wouldn't have confided in his brother. They weren't that close. And at the moment, there's nothing really that links Mick Nathan to any of this. Now, you will have heard a name mentioned in that conversation. A man called George Pfeffinger. He was an American stationed at Fold. It's a name that I've been given as someone that may have been the contact between Mick Nathan and fold. Now, I've been trying to find Mr. Pfeffinger back in America, and I have. And in the interest of completeness, I've also found some other people who were serving in the US Army who were stationed at fold. And I've been in contact with their families, hopefully, so they can throw some light on the relationship between. US servicemen stationed at Fold and what was going on in Burton. I've also got a great deal to do on this Czechoslovakian notion that I had. I think there might be something in that. But that's for the next episode. So until next time, have a good one. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSE Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.